My friends, you can imagine the state of mind of the disciples as uh, the day Friday passed. You know, we call it Good Friday, don't we? When we gathered with the uh, brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Fellowship on Friday, Pastor Buchestein, he told us not to think about Good Friday as a defeat and the resurrection as a victory, right? He told us to think about Good Friday as a, as a victory and as the resurrection as a vindication. He even said, let's leave church today saying hallelujah. But that's us, isn't it? We know what happened on Good Friday. We have a whole theology surrounding that day and the events of it. We know Easter's coming. But the disciples had no such knowledge. And I think we could say, my friends, with, with certainty, that when that stone ground shut on the sepulcher of Jesus, the hopes of the disciples died with it. When Jesus' body went into that grave, it was as if the hopes of the disciples were dead and buried along with the body of Jesus. It's hard for us, isn't it, to, to put ourselves in their shoes. Again, we know what Good Friday is. That's why we call it Good Friday, right? But what a state of despair must have come over these men and the women, the disciples at that time, as they thought about all that Jesus had taught them about his kingdom. And now it all come to an end. It was all over. There was nothing left to talk about. Time to go home. Time to hit the reset button, as it were. It was good while it lasted. Jesus was a great man and a great teacher. But now it's over. He's dead. He's buried. I think something of that is captured in the, in the two men on the way to Emmaus. And again, I, I hope to, uh, this morning that you can kind of feel, that you can kind of sense something of the despair that must have been in the hearts of these men when they said, of course, they were talking to Jesus. They didn't know he was Jesus. But they said, uh, so Jesus says, uh, what things have happened that you're all so sad about, right? And they said the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And then verse 21. And, and, and again, feel, feel. Something of the despair in these words. Verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Boy, those, those words are just thick with despair, aren't they? But we were hoping. Now, of course, we're not hoping anymore. Our hope has come to an end. Our hope was buried with the body of Jesus. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Israel. And so there's this tremendous feeling of despondency and despair that comes over the disciples. And we see that uh, also in Mary, don't we? That's my first point, Mary's darkness. You can see the despair, the hopeless nature of her, of her hopes, as it were, of that time. It's all come to an end for her. And in, in, uh, in, in verse 1 of chapter 20, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, of course, that's referring to the fact that the sun hadn't risen yet. But that was also the state of her soul, my friends. 
There was darkness on her soul. There was the darkness of despair, the darkness of her hopes having been buried with the body of Jesus. While it was still dark. And we know that Mary's grief is very strong, not just because Jesus has died. By the way, at this point, Mary is probably not alone. If you look at verse 2, so when Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, the other women uh, more than likely were with her. Sometimes it's hard to put together the, how this all worked out at the end here, but in chapter 20 of John, and verse 2, it says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we, and we do not know where they have laid him. So evidently there was, there was more than just Mary Magdalene. The other women were with her. But after the other women have gone and Mary is at the tomb alone, she is weeping. And the angels say to her, why are you weeping? And Jesus says, why are you weeping? So not only was there darkness in the soul of Mary because Jesus had died and all the teachings that he had given seemed to die with him, all the promises he had made seemed to die with him, but now Mary, in the love of her soul, her heart still beats so strong for her Savior that she comes to the tomb early after the Sabbath had passed. She comes to the tomb on Sunday morning early, even before the sun has risen, with a desire to anoint the body of Jesus. That's given us in Mark chapter 2, that these women came. Now, what exactly this was, I'm not sure. Uh, evidently, it was some token of respect that they were going to give to the body of Jesus. They had already wrapped him up, uh, but evidently they were going to do something else for him. But now even that is denied them. So you might say their, their sorrow is compounded. Even this last token of love that they can give to their Savior is now taken from them because when they get to the tomb, it's empty and the stone is rolled away. So now you might say their sorrow is even compounded, is even doubled. This is the state of Mary's mind as she comes to the tomb on Easter morning. And that's why I've called this Mary's darkness. There is darkness on her soul. She feels as if the Lord Jesus Christ, her Savior, her King, her Teacher, has abandoned her. He's left her behind, as it were. And she's weeping. And she's seeking him. Well, that brings me to point two. Mary, my friends, is seeking to bring a gift to Jesus. This last token of love and respect that she can give to her master, to her teacher. But who is Mary seeking here? I think you can read that there. Mary is seeking a dead Jesus, isn't she? She's seeking a dead Jesus. She's seeking the body of Jesus. What does that mean for us then this morning? When we read in the scripture that Mary was seeking a dead Jesus, she's going to bring a gift to the, to the corpse, to the dead body of Jesus. That means there was, my friends, in the heart of Mary, for all the love that she had, for all the devotion that she had to Jesus, there was a fundamental failure to understand the promises that Jesus had made concerning his own resurrection. Now, this is actually really interesting to me, my friends. I, I, this caught my eye, actually, on Friday when we were reading all those passages 
at Emmanuel Fellowship, it caught my eye that even the soldiers, even the Roman, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Jewish uh, leadership, they understood, <coughs> it appears, the promises that Jesus was going to rise again better than Mary. Because they said to the Roman guard, we need to secure this tomb because he had talked about rising again after three days. Isn't that interesting that even the Jewish men who hated Jesus and were doing the best to, to shut him down, they seemed to understand that Jesus had made these promises, these predictions that he was going to rise again on the third day. But Mary doesn't have that in her soul, does she? Mary must have heard the same words. No doubt the disciples must have talked about it. And yet there was this, this, this lack of faith. Again, there was a great love for Jesus, a great devotion for him, but not a faith in that promise that Jesus had said he was going to rise again. And so this morning, we have Mary Magdalene, full of love, burning with love for her Savior. And yet she's seeking a dead Jesus. And the title of the sermon, children, what's the title of the sermon this morning? You see that on your paper? Right? A resurrection gift for Mary. Now let's talk about that. Let's talk about the gift that Jesus brings to Mary. Because Jesus turns that around, doesn't he? Mary comes with a gift for Christ. But Christ says, no, I have a gift for you, Mary. I have a gift for you. And the first gift is this. That when Mary turns around, she sees a living Jesus. She still doesn't understand. She still doesn't recognize him, does she? So slow to come to an understanding of what the resurrection meant. Until Jesus speaks to her and he says, Mary. Now, my friends, there's the first resurrection gift that Jesus has for Mary. Because when he speaks that word, it's not just a call. It's not just a, a word. It's not just a name. It's an effectual call. It is the kind of word, my friends, that God spoke in Genesis 1 when he said, let there be on those six days of creation. And when Jesus says, Mary, the veil goes down. Now she sees. Her eyes go open. And she sees her Savior. She sees the man that she loves, her teacher, standing in front of her. And that is a gift, my friends. Not a dead Jesus. A living Jesus. But Jesus has something else to say to her. Another gift. Perhaps one gift with two parts to it is a better way to think of it. Because that is our text this morning. That is the text. And Jesus says to her in verse 17. Would you read that with me? In verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Notice the words there. Very carefully notice. I have not yet ascended to the Father. You see that there? To the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend. Now it changes. I ascend to my Father. And now here comes the gift. Children, listen. Here's the Easter gift that Jesus gives to Mary. Just these words. And your Father. 
I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, my friends, what a wonderful thing it is to have a living Jesus. She's seeking a dead Jesus, but Jesus comes to her as a living Jesus. But even that, my friends, as great and as wonderful as that is, that still falls short. Because even, even a living Jesus, my friends, isn't for me. In fact, in one sense, you could say a living Jesus could be a terror. When we think about our sin and our guilt and all that we have deserved by our life and our failure to walk in accordance with God's commandments. But now Jesus takes that one step forward and he has another gift. And this one is more precious even than the first, my friends. Because now Jesus says, I ascend to my Father and to your Father. That means that the same being, the same person that I call my Father, now is also your Father. That means that God the Father in all his justice, in all his wrath and justice against the sin of man, is now a reconciled God. And now God, as it were, holds out the hand of a family relationship, of a father relationship. And he says, you may come into my family, into the glorious mystery and union of the Trinity, my friends, that our minds can never comprehend. God now extends his hand on Easter morning, and he gives this gift for Mary. Mary, leave your spices behind. I don't need your anointing. I don't need you wrapping my body in a burial shroud. I am not a dead Jesus. I am a living Jesus, Mary. And I'm ascending to my Father, and to your father. Now that's a testimony to the work of what Christ had done on behalf of Mary. That he had made atonement for her sin. And that's why Jesus can say to this woman, who could have been dismissed into hell eternally, let's not forget who Mary Magdalene is. Right? She was a woman who had lived in sin for many years. But now God says to this woman, with all her sin and with all her guilt, I ascend to my Father and to your Father. What a wonder that is, my friends. What an astonishing gift that God will say to this woman. That Mary, I bring you now into my covenant of grace. The covenant of grace that I made with Jesus. Between the Father and the Son in eternity past. I now welcome you, Mary, you prostitute. You adulterer. I welcome you into this covenant, into this grace that I have made between me and my son, Jesus Christ. I ascend to my father and to your father. And now Mary responds. She receives that gift with a weak faith. A weak faith. Let me tell you why it's a weak faith. She says in verse 16, she says to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. It's like saying rabbi. My teacher is like what is what she says. My teacher. Yes, that's a faith, but that's a weak faith, isn't it? She just says, my teacher. She embraces him. If you go farther on in the chapter to when Jesus appeared to Thomas, you see a strong faith. If you look at verse 28 in the same chapter, John 20 and verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now there's a strong faith. 
There's a faith where Thomas comes up above the level of just my teacher. And he says, my Lord. That, is, that means he is attributing full deity to Jesus. My Lord and my God. But at any rate, weak faith or strong faith, they both join one to Jesus Christ. And when we are joined to Jesus Christ, then God the Father becomes our God and our Father. And that's now a resurrection gift for Mary. My friends, let me move then to these applications. And in the first place, I feel that on Easter morning, we can meditate and we can reflect on the vanity of this world. The vanity of this world. Everything in this world that would seek to delight us, to bring us satisfaction, ends in tears. There is nothing, my friends. There is nothing under the sun, says Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is all vanity and all futility. It cannot bring satisfaction to the human soul. Here is Mary seeking Jesus. And already we can learn from this, my friends, that if we're not seeking Jesus, that if we are not crying out for Jesus, then we miss then we miss the only true satisfaction that ever can come. This is also a preaching to us on Easter morning. Dear friends, I ask you to, to examine your own soul. Whether you're young or whether you're old this morning, whatever it is that you're chasing, do you at least come up to the level of Mary here when she seeks Jesus? Now she's seeking a dead Jesus. And we talked about that. But is there in your life this cry, this desire, this earnest desire to know Jesus, to be joined with him. Give me Jesus or I die, said the hymn writer. Right? And Paul said he counted all things but loss and dung, manure, in order that he might know the knowledge, have the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so in the first place, hear the question that Jesus asked Mary. She said, Jesus asked Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Let me ask that question to you this morning, dear friend. Wherever you may be in life, wherever you are at with God, let me ask you this question. Why are you crying? And whom are you seeking? I come to the second point. My friends, I'd like to spend more time on this second point, spiritual desertion. Because we see also in our text this morning, that there come times in the life of God's people, in the life of God's children, when God steps away from them, <clears throat> when God withdraws from them the influences and the motions, you might say, of his love and of his kindness to them. And when they feel, as it were, a darkness come down upon them. Spiritual desertion. We see this all the time in the Psalms, right? When, when David will say, or the psalmist will pray, Lord, why are you hiding your face from me? And my friends, if you have any, any experience in the life of faith and in the walk with God, then you know something of what this is. Those times in our life when we feel as if God has withdrawn himself from us. And we do not have that felt sense of his presence in our life. As Paul would say, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. But there are those times, aren't there? Those painful times when we don't sense the Spirit of God witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God. And certainly that was the condition of Mary. 
when Christ died and went in the tomb and was buried, she felt abandoned by her master, by her Lord. And the same is true in the life of God's people. I wanted to read with you in our Canons of Dort, which speaks something of this. If you would take the blue hymnal and turn to page 95. In the blue hymnal, in the back of the blue hymnal, so don't turn to 95 in the front, but in the very back, in the appendices in the back of the blue hymnal, you'll find one of our confessional documents, which is called the Canons of Dort. It's very precious to us. And it speaks to us on page 95 in article 16. And in this particular article, it's speaking about the doctrine of election and reprobation, the doctrine of predestination. But in, in article 16, it talks, and read with me here, it says, those in whom a living faith in Christ and assured confidence of soul, peace of conscience, and earnest endeavor after filial, filial uh, means childlike obedience, a glorying in God through Christ is not as yet strongly felt. So these are people who are, who are saved, but they do not yet have the sense, the, the feeling, as it were, of God's nearness to them, is not as yet strongly felt, and who nevertheless make use of the means which God has appointed for working these graces in us, ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to rank themselves among the reprobate, but diligently to persevere in the use of means and with ardent desires devoutly and humbly to wait for a season of richer grace. So you see our fathers in the canons of Dort counseling people who do not yet have that joy and that confidence in God to continue to use the means of grace and to wait for a season of richer grace. And again, you, you, you find there the assumption, my friends, is that God sovereignly, for reasons known only to himself, sometimes withdraws from his people. Those are painful times for God's people. But God, in his fatherly goodness, knows what we need. And sometimes he does that for the good of his people. Let me continue in the Canons of Dora, if you'll turn to page 111. So continue now to uh, head 5, or chapter 5 of the Canons of Dort, and Article 11. This is on page 111. Page 111. We read in, in, uh, in Article 11, so page 111 and Article 11, the scripture moreover testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various carnal doubts, and that under grievous temptations, they do not always feel this assurance of faith and certainty of persevering. But God, who is the Father of all consolation, does not suffer them to be tempted above that they are able, but will, with the temptation, make also the way of escape, that they may be able to endure it. And by the Holy Spirit, again, inspires them with the comfortable assurance of persevering. So here you have the situation of a believer under the strong temptations. He's not yet fallen into sin, but the power of temptation is so strong in his life that he loses for a time the sense of the joy in the Lord. And then last of all, Article 13, same page, just in the second right-hand column there, Article 13. Neither does renewed confidence of persevering produce licentiousness, 
or uh, think uh, worldliness, or a disregard of piety in those who are recovered from backsliding. But it renders them much more careful and solicitous to continue in the ways of the Lord, which he has ordained, that they who walk therein may keep the assurance of persevering, lest on account of their abuse of his fatherly kindness, and listen now carefully, God should turn away his gracious countenance from them, to behold which is to the godly dearer than life, and the withdrawal of which is more bitter than death. And they, in consequence thereof, should fall into more grievous torments of conscience. These are wise words that our fathers have given us. Right In the first place, we saw that the, a, a certain doctrine of Scripture can cause people distress and anguish of mind. Right? And, the, and our fathers have counseled us to stay persevering in the means of grace and to wait for a season of richer grace. And don't misunderstand the doctrine of predestination or other doctrines that may bring a person into distress. Then in Article 11 of Chapter 5 of the Do of Canons, right, we saw that there can come times in the life of God's people when they face great temptation, setbacks in health, setbacks in business, setbacks of whatever kind in life, hardships that we have to live with. And the temptation is strong then to conclude that God has left me, that God has abandoned me, and that all these hardships and trials that I'm facing are because God is somehow angry with me. Again, a situation. And then in the last article, in Article 13, we saw that, and again, I would say this is by far the most common, that we slip into some sin. Either a sin of omission, right? Not doing something that we shouldn't be doing. Or a sin of commission, a sin that we're actually committing that goes against the law of God. And imperceptibly, right, the people of God can slip into these patterns of living into this neglect or into this practice that is dishonoring to God and God withdraws from them. And then notice those powerful words, my friends, that we read, that the face of God, seeing God's gracious countenance or face, to behold which is to the godly dearer than life and the withdrawal of which is more bitter than death. This is something that Mary Magdalene could have spoken of. This is something that she experienced in her own soul, that when Jesus went away, it was more bitter to her than death itself. And that's why she weeps. That's why she comes to the tomb to bring a gift to, to a dead Jesus. And my friends, it magnifies all the more this glorious gift that now Jesus turns around. He says, Mary, lay aside your gift. Let me give you this gift. And now this teaches us, my friends, this teaches us what to do in these times. And I believe that this is such a precious teaching of the empty tomb this morning. The preaching of Easter, what to do in those times in our life when that darkness settles in upon us, when we feel as if God has withdrawn himself from us. Well, I just go back to what we talked about before. Receive, my friends, these two gifts that Jesus brings also to you this morning. That if you are a believer in Christ, God has an Easter gift for you. Jesus has an Easter gift for you. And the first is to seek for a living Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Why do we seek for a living Jesus? Because a living Jesus, my friends, is a victorious Jesus. 
A living Jesus is a present Jesus. A living Jesus is a reigning or a ruling Jesus. You see the difference? Seek a living Jesus and embrace him by faith. What a precious verse in Revelation chapter 1. I was dead. Now that's an important part of Christ's work, no question about it. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of hate. You see, my friends, Jesus died for our sins. He was raised in exaltation. He's a living, reigning Jesus. And as a result of his resurrection, he has the keys, the power over death and the grave. This is the Jesus that our faith must take hold of. I think it was the angel in, uh, in one of the previous Gospels that said, Why do you seek for the living among the dead? Let's seek the living. Let's take hold of a living, reigning Jesus. Even in those times of darkness, we must seek a resurrected, victorious Jesus. Thomas Boston said to a Christian who was suffering under this darkness, he says, the marriage certificate by which you are married to Jesus, the marriage certificate, it might be out of sight, but it's not torn up. You understand that? The marriage certificate, it might be out of sight for a moment. There might be this darkness upon your soul. Your feelings might tell you that God has left you. But the marriage certificate is not tore up, my friends. Your salvation lies secure in the electing love of God the Father. That brings me to the second part of that gift then. Accept and believe, rest on this precious gift. My Father and your Father. And therefore a reconciled God. My friends, don't bring a gift to Jesus. There will be time for that later. But in those moments of darkness, that's not time now for you to bring a gift to Jesus. You need to have the empty hand to receive a gift from him. And he says to you, in all your times of sorrow, all your times of temptation, and all your times of darkness, I have a gift for you. Lay aside your gifts. Jesus doesn't need your gifts. But you sure need his gift. And his gift is to teach you that because of that empty tomb, to teach you that because he is a living, reigning Jesus, God the Father is your Father. He is a reconciled God in Christ. His wrath is taken away, and he receives you as his child. He brings you into his covenant of grace. What a wonder, my friends. What a beautiful teaching. What a wonderful truth. It's almost as if Jesus puts a ring on the finger of Mary at the tomb. And he says, Mary, here's this ring. Right? Just like a, just like a, a wedding ring for a couple. Right? Which teaches them every time they see it, reminds them of their vows of marriage. And Jesus, in the same way, says, Mary, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. To my God and to your God. My friends, isn't that what takes place every time the sacrament is spread before us here? Isn't that what we do when that bread is broken? When that wine is poured out? It's Jesus saying to us that as surely as you see these things, so surely I am your God in Christ. 
I, f- I pray, my friends, that we would respond then to that resurrection gift to receive it in faith and to say with Thomas, let's go beyond Mary. Mary said, my teacher, still a saving faith, but let's have the strong faith of Thomas, my Lord and my God, and to receive that gift and to cast ourselves upon it and to find all our comfort in that precious truth, my God and my Father. May God bless these words to us. Almighty God and merciful Father, we draw near to you at the close of this service. Lord, what a blessing already it is to call you Father. But now Jesus takes it even one step further and gives us this precious gift this morning that we may say, my Father, our Father, my God, our God. Lord, I pray that by faith we would take hold of this gift, that we would lay aside all our own gifts, And that we would have an empty hand to receive this gift from you. To know that we have a reconciled Father in Jesus Christ. That our sins have been forgiven. That you've been raised for our justification. And that we have a good hope of rising also with you one day to eternal life. Lord, bless young and old this morning with these Easter blessings. May we take them with us. Help us to lay these before you in prayer. To worship you, O God. To worship you for your goodness to us. Lord, we're also thankful this morning that Minor Balcoma can be with us in church this morning. After a, an accident at home, Lord, you've given her, you've uh, spared her and given her a recovery enough that she can gather with us this morning, and we're thankful for that. Bless her, Lord, and bless all of us together, and lift our hearts up to the Lord Jesus Christ, where he dwells and where he sits at the right hand of you, and where we hope one day to be also with him in glory. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's turn now on the blue hymnal to number 129. Number 129, thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free. In tender mercy turn thou unto me. Hide not thy face from me in my distress. In mercy hear my prayer. Thy servant bless. And what follows in the four verses of 129 in the blue hymnal.